This is Deep Dive. I'm Sui. 2022 was an eventful year. We've decided to recap the year in this episode with two of my colleagues. Here in China, a key party congress has mapped out the country's future development steps and goals. I sat down with my colleague Yang Guang to talk about the significance of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. It's no doubt one of the most consequential political events for China. Could you first tell us the major results of the National Congress? To summarize, as the National Congress literally put it, and just concluded, 20th CBC National Congress elected a 205-member CBC Central Committee and a 133-member CBC Central Commission for Discipline and Inspection. Um, delegates to the CBC National Congress adopted the resolutions endorsing the reports of the previous CBC Central Committee and the work reports of the 19th Central Commission for Discipline and Inspection. Um, and the National Congress also passed a resolution on an amendment to the CPC Constitution. Uh, what matters here is not only what decisions the delegates make in terms of whether they approve the reports or the amendment to the party constitution or not, but also what these documents, um, the reports delivered by Xi Jinping at the opening session, the amendment to the party constitution actually contain. Uh, like you said, the National Congress um, is one of the most influential political sessions, if not the most influential one in China. Mm. As the highest body of the Communist Party of China, it determines the leadership in the CPC and the changes to the party's constitution. It also blueprints the national development plan and also serves as a policy adjustment mechanism to keep this party on the right track in terms of uh, governing this vast country with a with a population of 1.4 billion. Uh, in this sense, the major results of this national congress actually um, exists in that report. Um, it made clear of the party's central task, um, which is to lead the Chinese people to realize the second centenary goal of building China into a great modern socialist country in all respects, and to advance the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation on all fronts through a Chinese path to modernization. And it made a clear timeline here in terms of on what level of development should China reach in the future? First, to basically realize socialist modernization by 2035, and from 2035 to the mid 21st century, to build China into a great modern socialist uh, socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, harmonious, and beautiful. And the reports also specified how China should do to achieve these goals through different aspects of work as a massive guideline here. Uh, so the major results of the National Congress here is that it draws a detailed plan for China in terms of its development, telling all of us what China is aiming to be in the years ahead. And Apparently, a buzzword is the one proposed by Xi Jinping at the opening session, which is called the Chinese Path of Modernization. Uh, so what exactly does it mean? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quite catchy phrase lately, isn't it? Um, well, to fully understand this term, we, we still need to go back uh, to the reports mm -hmm. and uh, people would find it already uh, gives the answer to what is China's modernization. The reports 
outlined China's overall development objectives for the year of 2035, by which year China aims to basically realize socialist modernization, as I mentioned、um, earlier. This objective includes first, substantially growing the per capita GDP of the country to be on par with that of a mid-level developed country.、Uh, this is a very specific target,、uh, but the fact is. Um, internationally, the concept of the mid-level developed countries rather vague. If, if you research on it, you would find there was there is no exact、uh, definition of a mid-level developed country. But some experts say to reach the threshold of a mid-level developed country, the per capita GDP of China needs to be around twenty thousand U.S. dollars.、Mm. Uh, to make a clear comparison here, in 2021,、uh, last year,、uh, China's per capita GDP was $12,000. Experts say in less than 13 years of time, before 2035, we still need a rather rapid economic growth to hit the target. Well, the reports also listed other tasks for China, like significantly enhancing national soft power, steadily lowering. Carbon emissions after reaching a peak, as well as、um, comprehensively strengthening the national security systems and、um, capabilities. The report specifically described the next five years as a crucial、um, period for getting our efforts to build a modern socialist country in all respects off to a good start. And the report also listed. The main objectives and the tasks for this period, at these five years, which range from achieving greater self-reliance、mm. and strengthening science technology to further improving the socialist market economy and enabling China to play a greater role in global governance. All these aims and efforts are part of China's modernization in their report.、Mm-hmm. We know most of the discussions surrounding concepts like modernization or modernity are based on the history of the Western countries. So, how is this Chinese approach different from the modernization process people often talk about under the Western discourse? Yeah,、um, well, this did arouse discussions among so many scholars and experts.、Um, if you look at the objectives China aims to reach, China's modernization contains Elements that are, are very common to the modern modernization processes of all countries, actually, but it is more character、uh, characterized by features that are unique to the Chinese context. It's it's not a mere replica of the Western、uh, modernization. Xi Jinping said in the report submitted by the 19th CPC National Congress that、um, as the CPC Central Committee, that China's modernization is the Modernization of a huge population, of common prosperity for all,、um, of material and cultural ethical advancement, of harmony between humanity and nature, and of peaceful development. Experts say, although modernization theory has its origins in the West, modernization is by no means equal to Westernization, and there was there has never been a One side fits all appro- approach、uh, to modernization. Even though the modernization of the West has created unprecedented wealth, its its path of aggression,、um, colonization, and expansion is 
is not viable. Uh, this path has also led to uh, problems, including a widening wealth gap, um, waste of resources, and environmental damage. Actually, Sean Slatrade, one of the foreign experts invited to translate Xi Jinping's report to the CPC uh, National Congress, said China is underscoring the importance of every country pursuing modernization through a path that is suited to their own conditions and that their people will accept and support. It's modernization for a huge population. Um, it involves common prosperity. It also promotes harmony between humanity and nature. And um, it's also a path of peaceful development. They are kind of distinctly different to the path that other countries have uh, chosen in the, path, in, in the past when pursuing modernization. Actually, a delegate to the CPC National Congress from the rural areas uh, of Yunnan province also said that China's success in mass poverty alleviation over the past years has highlighted one of the key features mm -hmm. of China's modernization, which is common prosperity. Um, he said China's modernization benefits everyone in the country instead of, instead of just a few. Um, a foreign expert who participated in polishing the Arabic version of the report said um, for other developing countries, China's modernization offers a new choice for achieving modernization based on their own conditions and more international cooperation rather than plunder, war and blood. I think Chinese modernization is based on China's realities and has China's own characteristics. It provides other developing countries a practical experience that there is the possibility to realize modernization in a peaceful and a harmonious way, with more global cooperation instead of exploitation, or and blood. <laughs> Thank you very much, Yang Guang. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine shocked the world in 2022. Its impacts have rippled through many parts of life, such as inflation, energy, and food. For this, I also spoke with CGTN reporter Li Jianhua, who traveled across the war zones. So let's start with your experience mm -hmm. in Donetsk, which is a city with a population of a million. But you, mm -hmm. you said now the city is almost empty. What's it like when a mega industrial city is empty? Should be busy, right? Be busy, yeah, yeah, it's a big city with a population of around one million. Right. But when we first got there, it was almost empty. The civil war probably continued and lasted around eight years, right. starting in 2014, you know, between the Kiev national forces and those that seek independence in the Donbas region, especially in Donetsk. And, you know, the great majority of people there, they are Russian speakers. And then despite the Minsk agreements in 2014 and 2015, but low-intensity fighting along the line, uh, contact between Ukrainian government and the Russian-controlled areas continues until 2022. And we know that over the past eight years or, so, or something, um, over 30 ceasefires actually mm -hmm. were observed. But unfortunately, none of them stopped the violence. So um, the first place we checked out was the city center where around 12 people were killed in early March, I think, including children, civilians, and many people didn't want to uh, venture out. So my question was, uh, when I first got there, where were those people? Right. So I asked my fixer, where are they? So m many of them have been mobilized, especially men. 
they have been mobilized. So you see a lot of, you see more women mm -hmm. than men in the streets. If there were any people, you know, venturing out, going around in the streets. And also you could see that some refugees queuing up, uh, not only refugees, but like civilians queuing up um, for SIM cards. When we first got there, actually, we didn't have SIM cards, so we couldn't contact anyone. If I leave my hotel, they would definitely wouldn't be able to contact me, I mean, including our work. So I usually would stay in the hotel, and once I leave, would tell them that I would come back to this hotel, and then around what time, I'm going to send you a message that that means I'm back and safe and sound. Yeah, so for the first three days, we didn't get anything, and then it took us probably around three or four days to get SIM cards, you know, the regular stuff that we have to take for granted. Telecommunication was severely affected because the Kiev government, ever since this protest, this their seeking for independence started back in 2014, the Kiev government started to cut off their telecommunication services to the Donbas region. So they had to change um, the server to Phoenix, which is called Phoenix. Mm -hmm. But it was not quite stable and not enough SIM cards, especially when it comes to so many refugees stranded in the Donbas region. It was swarming to the Donetsk uh, city and they have to get SIM cards, new SIM cards, mm -hmm. so that they can contact their lost relatives or families or their friends. Like you mentioned, there are still people on the streets, mm -hmm. but daily necessities are, cannot be guaranteed. Mm -hmm. The city is hardly functioning. How do people go about their lives? Um, daily necessities actually are limited. Uh, they can't be guaranteed. Not everything can be guaranteed, you know, when it comes to this conflict. I had an interview with someone from um, Donetsk in the countryside. It was not far away from the battlefield, probably around five kilometers away. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. Five kilometers away. You can hear cannons and gunfire all the time, uh, almost at all time. You can even see that, like, tank would probably roll around and just in front of, just past the front of your... I had an interview with this family. They uh, actually moved multiple times already over mm -hmm. the past eight years. So they went to Russia and also some other cities in Ukraine. And But still, they chose to come back because they think that um, even though this conflict was quite severe, especially ever since the special military operation started in mm -hmm. February, um, they think this probably would be the end of it. So they were more tired of it than afraid of this conflict now. Mm -hmm. So now I see their mindset. Yeah, they think this is the like the beginning of the end. So they just try to uh, come back and settle down. Yeah, I like how you phrase it. It's mm. like probably it, this is the beginning of the end, but we don't know. We don't know if there is a ending site. But that still, people in the Donetsk region, in the city, they hope that this could come to an end. Mm -hmm. It is much better than like this a protracted conflict. So from um, Donetsk, mm -hmm. you went to Mariupol. Obviously, mm -hmm. the city drew the most media attention mm -hmm. from March to June. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you first entered the city? Like, you could feel that it was dark. You could see that a lot of buildings blackened because, like, continued shelling and burning probably for about a month's time already. We went there in April, mm -hmm. and the uh, city was bombarded and shelled starting March. So it was already a month time. Um, so you could hear in the background rocket fires, cannons, 
gunshots at all times. It didn't stop. But the thing is, the refugees, all of the refugees, vendors in the city, they didn't feel like it was a surprise anymore. I think they have got used to it. There were around. Three hundred thousand people stranded there, according to official statement,、okay. when it was there in April,、mm. and people queued up for humanitarian supplies, food, water, SIM cards, three things:、yeah. food, water, SIM cards,、uh, provided by the United Nations, the Red Cross, and also some probably private owners or something, or some businessmen who were going to Mariupol to provide them with the daily necessities, but some civilians. Um, thought it was not enough. I had some interview with many of those in Mariupol.、Uh, there was a lady who used to be an accountant.、Um, she told me that it was not enough. Like the uh, humanitarian uh, aid, you know, the supplies, necessities was given out probably like once two weeks. It was not enough for her or her family to last like two weeks' time or a month, maybe. Of course, I can say one thing to the world: war is horrible, undoubtedly. War leads to hunger and death. It's very hard to talk about it. There is emptiness inside me. So whenever I did an interview, I would ask the interviewee, "What was your job before?"、Yeah. Some of them were professors, engineers, or financial consultant, or pensioners,、um, teachers. It was really hard to believe that they were used to be professors or engineers at all, because after months of shelling, many of them have been reduced to, I have to say, scavengers. Yeah. And、um, civilians were sent to hospitals. You know, this city.、Uh, it was Mariupol is a coastal city. Down under, it was the Sea of Azov.、Mm-hmm. Um, very famous one, very beautiful. Before you know the conflict started, many civilians were sent to hospital.、Uh, there was this very small hospital in the suburbs of Mariupol. I went to the hospital twice, and twice I saw some civilians being sent into the hospital、um, because of shrapnel, bomb shrapnel. And every day, I did the interview、uh, with someone who was in charge of the hospital. They told me that every day there were around ten to twelve people, civilians.、Mm-hmm. I mean, being sent into this hospital, but they didn't have enough like uh, um, facilities to support this anymore.、Mm-hmm. And people had to live in bunkers. There are so many districts. They call it like districts, like the the bunkers or something,、mm-hmm. and which district you live in. They had to.、Uh, I visited one of those bunkers. It was dark. It was basically the basement. There were around twelve or twenty people who used to live there. But after that,、um, probably around one month into this conflict, some of them left the bunkers because of humanitarian corridors、yeah. or because their houses, fortunately. Were not burned down, so they could go back, or they have their relatives that they can rely on. But if you didn't have anyone that you can trust or you can、um, resort to, I mean, the means and sources, and then you had to stay in the bunker. And also, apart from that, street animals everywhere,、um, because they were not allowed to take their pets or everything they had. So a lot of street animals, dogs and cats. How come the humanitarian corridors? Were so difficult to be put into practice. I mean, I remember you talked to、uh, UN Under Secretary General、mm-hmm. uh, Martin Griffith in June.、Uh, it was not that easy for humanitarian corridors to be put into practice. First, you have to make sure that ceasefires are observed strictly by both parties.、Mm-hmm. But multiple times, the ceasefires were violated, and we know that 
Minsk agreements back in 2014 and 2015, two of them, they were violated. I mean, 30, over 30 ceasefires mm-hmm. in eight years, but none of them actually stopped the violence. Mm-hmm. So how about this one in Mariupol? And both sides, Russia and Ukraine, would accuse each other of violating the ceasefire. They would throw the mud around and then a lot of finger pointing. Mm-hmm. So some refugees didn't have uh, the ability, the means, to get the information about humanitarian corridors. Mm. And I had this interview with someone who lived in the bunker. She said, I have never heard of humanitarian corridors. Okay. Yeah, it was probably like the third or fourth time that humanitarian corridors were announced in Mariupol already, but mm. she didn't get anything. I was surprised. Also, it is quite dangerous to travel from one spot to another. Mariupol is a big city. So if you want to leave this city, if you want to escape this war zone, um, you have to go from your point to a designated location mm. and to get on the coach and to leave. But the thing is, it was very difficult because... It is far, and then you can't simply walk there because it's dangerous. There mm. could be some snipers hidden in the buildings, or there could be landmines, so they wouldn't be able to catch the bus at all. And also, um, the Undersecretary General of the United Nations, Martin Griffiths, said, um, he told me that it was difficult, even for the UN and the Red Cross, to get access to some particular regions of the Donbass region. But, of course, now it has been figured out and we haven't been able to access, uh, indeed, our own staff who remain in the Donbass. Um, and we need to get uh, medical supplies, health supplies, med- um, food supplies in there. We talk about actual battle. How did you feel when you walked through the battlefield? Like, you had to be extremely cautious, of course, in the battlefield. So we stayed in, basically, we were based in the Donetsk city, comparatively, it was safer to stay there. And then every day, if you want to go to Mariupol, you have to get up really early and then leave. It took us around probably for a round trip, around six hours mm. to get to Mariupol. It mm. was supposed to be shorter. But because of this conflict, there were so many checkpoints, probably a dozen, over a dozen checkpoints all through the way. So uh, you have to show your credentials all the time to make sure that you can get access to Mariupol. Mm. And along the road, in the field, there are so many landmines. So it was really dangerous, we have to say, to a certain extent. So you, you had to be cautious, vigilant, on alert all the time. And me and my cameraman, and we'd always say that if there is a bomb properly thrown our way and then we need to take cover, and mm-hmm. then in what way you can take cover, and then you have to be prepared at all times. And lastly, let's talk about Dumbas. Yeah. Apparently, the the flashpoint, the area, understandably, uh, is sitting in the middle of two uh, spheres of influence. How do local people think about this conflict? Or they may be already very psychologically prepared for the worst. That really depends, actually. That depends on who you talk to. Some of them probably are tired of it, and they are tired of moving around because of this uh, conflict. So they hope that that this could come to an end, so they are psychologically prepared for whatever comes next. They just hope this could come to an end. Yeah. But some of them, actually, they, they just feel it is, uh, they're terrified. We have to say that many of them were mm-hmm. terrified. And then I would feel that all of those people walking the streets, um, especially Marbupal, and then they have lost this um, hope for life in their eyes. You can see that they lost alerts totally. Mm-hmm. Were they prepared psychologically for whatever comes next probably they were probably were not
Of course, there were other major events in 2022 that also altered the path of the world, just to name a few. The 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games brought together athletes around the world and also opened a window on extreme sports for people in China. World leaders sat down in Egypt and Canada to discuss actions to mitigate climate change and protect biodiversity. But as some may hope to shrug off some bad memories of 2022 and start anew in 2023, we still have to face this year's lingering effects. COVID is in most parts of the world. Governments are trying to tame soaring inflation. People in the northern hemisphere are trying to get through blizzards and freezing weather, and those in the southern hemisphere could see more heat waves. Life has to go on, and 2023 is at our doorstep now. I and my team at Deep Dive wish everyone listening to our show a safe and healthy New Year. We will see you in 2023.